Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you will find a white paperback Bible or a blue paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. Passages on page 489. Uh, Mary and I returned just last night from a meeting of the China Partnership, which occurred in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. It was on Friday. And so I've talked to you a little bit about the, the China Partnership. It's a group of um, American pastors and church leaders who are getting together to see how we can best support the church in China. So it was the second annual council meeting and uh, very good time to uh, hear from the Chinese. Some things we heard were somewhat troubling regarding the persecution going on in that nation, but other things that we heard were very encouraging as well. And one of the encouraging things is a conference, an international conference that's going on in Kuala Lumpur in January. It's called KL 2020. And it is a conference for Chinese pastors and church leaders. They're expecting about 4,000 Chinese to gather, and they are encouraging members of the China Partnership and others in the West to attend as a show of support for the church in China. And so uh, the elders here and the missions team at New Life uh, have agreed that it's a good thing to send their pastor and his wife to that meeting in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in January. So I just wanted to inform you uh, that that is going to be happening. We'll be giving you more details about that as we get closer, but that'll be at the end of January, early February. Uh, you could be <clears throat> in prayer for that meeting. One of the reasons this is so special is because there is no way that many Chinese church leaders could gather in their own country. Uh, the government would not permit that, so that's why they're meeting in Malaysia, but it's great privilege and honor to be part of that. So your prayers for that would be appreciated. Um, <clears throat> you have heard me, I think probably many times, talk about uh, a guy named Christopher Hitchens, who was a very famous atheist, very articulate spokesperson for atheism, wrote many books about atheism. He passed away several years ago. So I've told you about Christopher, I think, quite a bit in, in sermons. But one thing that some of you might not know is that Christopher Hitchens has a brother named Peter Hitchens. And Peter Hitchens is a devoted, committed believer in Jesus. Um, he is an apologist for the faith. He is an outspoken defender of Christianity. Christopher Hitchens, Peter Hitchens, same parents, brought up in the same household, same general genetic structure, and yet two hearts very different in response to the gospel and the proclaiming of God's word. Brings a very interesting question, doesn't it? What, what accounts for that reality? Why do some people believe and some people don't? particularly when you have two brothers with so many other things equal and yet hearts so different. Well, we're going to be looking at a parable here this morning that is going to address that very question. It's called the parable of the sower, one that many of you are familiar with. We are still 
working our way through Route 66, going through the entire Bible, one sermon per Bible book. We started in Genesis, last week began the New Testament and the book of Matthew, and now we've reached Mark, the second gospel, or second biography. Last week we talked a little bit about the difference between a biography and a gospel. Mark is the second in the New Testament, giving us a depiction of the life of Jesus. We believe, scholars believe, Mark was the gospel written first among the other four gospels that Matthew, Luke, and John most likely borrowed a lot of their material from Mark. Um, so let's take a look at uh, some information here about the gospel of Mark. Mark is the author. We're all pretty clear about that. Mark actually was not a disciple of Jesus. He was not an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, but Mark was a companion of Peter. Peter was a disciple, and so we believe a lot of what Mark knew was passed on to him through Peter. Um, the idea here this morning is we're going to look at something in the public ministry of Jesus. Last week through Matthew, we looked at the birth of Jesus. Next week, well, well, not next week. Next week is our Thanksgiving service, by the way, so you'll want to be here for that as we'll hear from some individuals in our congregation about um, testimonies of thanks. That's next Sunday. Pastor Brian will be bringing us a message. Sunday after that, we'll get back to the sermon series. Luke will hear about the crucifixion, and then John will think about the resurrection. So today we're just thinking about something in the public ministry of Jesus, and that involves the telling of a parable here in the book of Mark. Um, <clears throat> when was Mark written? We believe in the late 50s AD, so this would be about 25 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, events in the book of Mark, very similar to the ones found in Matthew and Luke, for the reasons that I've just cited. Matthew and Luke, we think, borrowed a lot from Mark. So, John the Baptist, many healings, um, <clears throat> feedings of the 4,000 and the 5,000, the transfiguration, Peter's confession, uh, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Of course, many other things, but those are some major events. In Mark, actually, there's no birth narrative, so that's one thing that sets Mark apart from Matthew and in uh, Luke. Um, and major themes in Mark involve the power of God, particularly through these healings, uh, the necessity of suffering, both for Jesus and his followers, Jesus' identity as the Son of Man and Son of God, and uh, the cost of discipleship. But one thing that Jesus did a lot, and we see this in the book of Mark, is he did a lot of teaching. He did a lot of healings, but he also did a lot of teaching. And about a full third of his teaching was done in parables. And so that's one of the reasons I chose this parable today, so we can get a picture of the way Jesus taught. This parable in particular is going to force us to examine our own hearts. We can look to Christopher and Peter Hitchens and kind of marvel at what has happened, but we would miss the point if we didn't turn our attention inward and think, yeah, but what about me and what about my heart how does my heart respond when the word goes forth? And hopefully the Spirit will lead us to examine that carefully as we hear his word this morning. So if you can, please stand. Mark chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Mark 4, 1 through 12. Here is the parable of the sower. It says, again he, that's Jesus... Began to teach beside the sea, 
And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Holy Spirit, would you please give us soft hearts as we hear your word proclaimed now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, one of many parables here in the New Testament, I did a series, sermon series on the parables many years ago actually, but did not cover this parable. So this will be the first time that I've dealt with this, but some of this might come as review for those of you who... Remember that series, one question we might ask is, what is a parable? <laughs> a parable is not quite the same as an illustration. It's not an allegory. It's not a fairy tale. Uh, a parable is kind of a, a unique way of teaching. Uh, we might describe a parable like this. It's a concrete depiction of a cosmic truth. A simpler way to put it would be just this. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's, it's earthly, it's concrete. That is, there are many details and parables sometimes have strange and odd twists, sometimes things that leave us a little confused. But the purpose is to teach cosmic truths, heavenly meanings. More specifically, the purpose is to teach us something about the kingdom of God. And you can see that in verse 11 very, very clearly. And he said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Remember last week I said the kingdom is the central theme of the entire Bible. And the parables are taught by Jesus to teach us what that kingdom is like. Because the kingdom of God is very different than the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God, everything's upside down actually compared to the king, kingdom of the world. I should say that differently. The kingdom of the world is upside down, but the kingdom of God is right side up. But entirely different than the values of the kingdom of the world. So the parables are given to teach about the kingdom. But there's more to it. What is the purpose of the parables? What are they for? Why does Jesus choose to teach in this particular way? And in verses 11 and 12, we see two reasons. One, he uses parables to conceal. Okay, that's pretty clear. The end of verse 11 for those outside, everything is in parables. What? So that, and then he quotes, I think this is Isaiah, so that they may 
indeed see, <clears throat> but not perceive, that they may hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's kind of an odd thing to hear, isn't it? What Jesus is saying here is, I'm teaching in parables so that those on the outside, what he means there are that those who have been listening to me and those who have been standing under my preaching and my teaching and they've been resisting it all this time and they're not following me. And so here is my act of judgment on their resistance. I'm now going to start speaking in parables so that they don't get it. That's what Jesus is saying. That's one of the purposes of the parables, an act of judgment to conceal from some but the parables are also given to reveal. And so you see, at the start of verse 11, he said to them, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom. To, to you who have ears to hear and eyes to see, which is what he says at the end of verse 9, he who has ears to hear, to those the secrets of the kingdom will be given. J.I. Packer said it like this, it's an interesting way to think of this. Revelation does not mean man finding God, but God finding man and sharing his secrets with us. That's part of what the scriptures are about. That's a part of what the parables are about. God sharing his secrets with us. And this particular parable is God's secret about the kingdom, particularly with regard to the heart of man in response to the word of God. And what we see here are four kinds of hearts Four heart conditions that manifest themselves as the word is proclaimed. So we're going to go through these four and see how they're described in the parable. First of all, <clears throat> some hearts are hard. We see that at the very beginning of this parable. It starts in these first few verses um, with just a description of Jesus getting together in front of this large crowd. Um, and he begins to teach, and he proclaims to them a very kind of earthly, common situation, just a story of a farmer. Very agrarian society, it would have been very common to everybody. They all would have known what it was like to see a farmer or to even work as a farmer. And so here's the farmer. The farmer is the sower. In verse 3, this farmer comes, and he begins spreading the seed. Now, one of the blessings of this particular parable is that Jesus interprets it for us. So he makes it very easy, and that's in verses 13 through 20. I didn't read those, but we'll be referring to those as we make sense of this. Verses 13 through 20. Jesus just tells us very clearly what this means. What he tells us is that the sower is someone who preaches the word of God. The seed is the word of God, the scriptures, God's truth. And the soil are the hearts of men and women and children as they hear the word. So... Jesus makes that very clear in his interpretation and then begins telling us here about this first heart condition. Some hearts are hard. So he says in verse 4, the sower, the farmer, or the preacher. In verse 4, as he sowed, it says, some seed fell along the path. So, you know, a farmer would sow seed in, in the field into the, into the soil but there's a path in this parable, a walking path that's next to the field. So the seed hasn't fallen into the soil. It's fallen onto this place where people walk up and down all day long. And the path has been packed down tight 
and there's no loose soil there at all. And so as the farmer is sowing the seed, some of the seed spills over onto the path. And you can just imagine what a seed, a light little seed would do falling on the path. It wouldn't penetrate. It wouldn't go anywhere. It would just lie there on top of the path. And what Jesus says is the birds then come and snatch it away and devour it. So who is this person that's being described? This is the person, the heart of the person who's got it all figured out spiritually. This is the person who has already figured out what he believes or what she believes about everything. This is the person who is now convinced that the, the Bible is not believable and that miracles can't happen and science has shown that all of this stuff is false. This is the person who is determined to not change his mind, to not change her mind. They've got it figured out. They're not willing to listen. Their fingers are in their ears. They don't want to hear. That's the picture of the hard heart. I remember years ago, somebody asked me to go visit a relative who was in the hospital. She was a very sick woman. And the person who invited me to go wanted me to share the gospel with this person. So I went to the hospital room and talked with her. And she was clearly in very bad condition. And if I'm in a situation like that, particularly with someone I don't know, <clears throat> I will always ask for permission to share the gospel. So I said, could I tell you about the gospel? And she just immediately shook her head. Didn't want to hear it. No. And it was within days she was dead. I mean, that's a hard heart. That's a woman just about to face her maker and doesn't want to hear it. I don't know why. She might have thought she had it figured out. Maybe she had determined never to change her mind about her religious convictions. But she didn't listen. And that's what this parable is describing. The hard heart. And what we see in the interpretation of this is that this is actually a picture of spiritual warfare. If you look down to verse, verse 15... Here is where Jesus is interpreting this. And he says, regarding, uh, these are the ones along the path, verse 15, where the word is sown, when they hear, look what's happening. This is like the background to what's happening. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. You see, this is spiritual warfare. This is the thing that Satan loves to do. Very often we think of Satan as wanting to make us sick or wanting to cause us to lose our job. But what Satan is chiefly interested in is hardening hearts, undermining the word of God, blinding people so they cannot see the truth. It's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of of the gospel. I mean, think about the Garden of Eden when, when um, the serpent comes to speak to Eve. You know, the serpent didn't come with a threat toward Eve. The, the serpent didn't come to make Eve sick. The, certain, the serpent came with an idea, a, a truth claim, and that is that God doesn't really want what's good for you. Satan came to confuse Eve. And that's exactly what Eve fell for, and Adam as well. Confusion set in, and that's what Satan loves to do. We're talking about spiritual warfare in the life of the mind. That's what we're all dealing with as Satan tries to undermine and confuse us as to God's revealed truth. And that's in the background what's going on with the hardness 
of some hearts. So that's the first category. The second category of heart here, some hearts are shallow. Some hearts are shallow. Verse 5, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. So it, it springs up quickly after the seed is planted, but it's a very temporary springing up. Verse 5 says there's no depth of soil. There's no roots. There's no anchor. It doesn't penetrate into the ground. It's shallow. And as a result of this, it doesn't last long. So who is this? Well, this is the person who hears the good news of the gospel, forgiveness of sins, eternal life through faith alone. And they're excited about this. And Maybe they make a profession of faith and they start coming to church and they stand among us and they sing songs and they like to listen to sermons and they start making friends in the church. But then something happens. Something happens. Two things happen according here to verse 17. If you want to flip forward, two things happen in verse 17. Tribulation comes. Tribulation comes. They lose a job. They get sick. Some disappointment comes. A dream fails to come to fruition. And they're devastated. And as a result of this tribulation, what happens? They, they fall away. It says the sun goes up. They wither and they fall away. They wither away under tribulation. The second thing that happens in verse 17. Persecution comes. Persecution. And notice how it says persecution arises on account of the word there. It's persecution received because of your belief in what the scriptures say. For the shallow heart who undergoes tribulation or persecution, however that might happen, certainly in China there is real persecution. People being arrested, families being broken up, churches being dispersed. In this country, it can take different forms as well. I mean, today, if you try to say that marriage should be between a man and a woman, or if you are to say that God created the human race in one of two sexes, male or female, you could find yourself very unpopular saying those kinds of things today. You could find yourself looked down upon, dismissed, maybe in some cases even breaking the law. And there are some people, some people who will say, you know, this... Christianity thing sounded really good, but I didn't sign up for this kind of difficulty. <laughs> this isn't what I had in mind, tribulation and persecution. And as a result, according to verse 17 at the very end, they fall away. They seemed like one of us, but when things got hard, they fell away. Thomas Paine uh, wrote during the Revolutionary War, and he wrote this collection of essays in the crisis. A very famous quote. Most of you are probably familiar with this. These are the times that try men's souls, he said. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from service to their country, but he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. The sunshine Patriot. What a great little phrase. This is describing the person who's devoted to the cause just so long as the sun is shining. But when the storms start to come, when things get cloudy, 
when things aren't quite as successful and prosperous, they can't stand. They shrink from service. And Christians are that way. Professed Christians can be that way. Yeah, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, being part of the body, that's great. But I don't want the pressure. I don't want the tribulation. I don't want the persecution. And they fall away. That's a shallow heart. There's no root. There's nothing in them to keep them moving forward and persevering through the hard times. The shallow heart. The third thing we get is the distracted heart. (laughs) The distracted heart. Verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. So thorns here are probably the equivalent of of like weeds. So here we have the seed that's fallen in the soil. The plant has grown up, but it's choked by these weeds. Now what is it that's choking it? Well, verse 19, move forward. Let's look at the interpretation. Jesus tells us what these weeds are. Verse 19, the cares of the world, first of all. That is anxiety, the things that we worry about whether we're making enough money, what our children are going to turn out to be, what I'm going to get in the exam, what kind of job I'm going to get, what my health is like. Some of us are so overwhelmed with our worries and anxieties, we get distracted from spiritual truths. But secondly, in verse 19, what he calls the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches, the desire to be rich, the desire to um, become Wealthy, materialism, the desire to constantly be buying and having more things. I think I've told you before that um, the Christians in China who are undergoing persecution uh, consider that a grave threat, but the threat that they consider to be more serious is the threat of materialism in China. They're more worried about materialism than persecution. That's the biggest danger in the eyes of the Chinese church leaders. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This is something that distracts us away from spiritual realities, riches. But then one other thing in verse 19, the last thing is what he calls the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Desires for other things just... The desire for pleasure, the desire for fun, the desire for comfort. Not that any of those things are are bad in themselves. The desire for entertainment. The desire to be glued to our devices and our cell phones. I'm a firm believer that there are more things to distract us in this day and age and this time than there have ever been in the history of the world. So many ways to be distracted. There's a guy named Tristan Harris who was a product manager at Google for many years and he left and he has become this outspoken critic of tech companies and um, the way uh, companies design their software and apps to hijack our minds is the way he, he says it. And Tristan Harris says this. I don't think he's a believer. I don't know if he's a believer. I have no idea. But he says... Technology steers what 2 billion people are thinking and believing every day. It's possibly the largest source of influence over 2 billion people's thoughts that has ever been created. Technology 
telling people what to believe. Billions of people just submitting and drinking it in, what their devices are telling them to think and believe. And what Jesus says here is that, that that's the kind of distraction that can pull you away if you're drawn into that too much. Some hearts are distracted. But the last category <clears throat> is some hearts are open. Some hearts are open. Verse 8, going back to verse 8, other seeds fell into good soil. It's just one out of the four. I don't know how much we should really read into that. Does that mean 25% of people have good soil? That's probably reading a little too much into it. But it does seem to suggest that maybe it's the minority of people. It's just one of four. Good soil. These produce grain growing up and increasing, yielding 30, 60, and 100 fold. Verse 20. Let's go to verse 20. Here's the interpretation of that. <clears throat> the seed falling into good soil. These were sown on the good soil and the ones who hear the word, what, what, what's the evidence, what's the sign of good soil? They accept it. They accept the word. Like a child, they just have a believing disposition and they receive it. But they don't just accept it, they bear fruit, it says. Then this repeated phrase, 30, 60, and 100 fold. They, they bear fruit. They that their hearts are changed, that is, their lives are different, that they now want to love people and they want to forgive people and they want to serve people and they want to repent and they want to grow in holiness and they want to be part of the church and they want to worship. They're bearing fruit. They're different. They're changed. That's the sign of the good soil. And one of the four groups is described as that kind of good soil. So, Let's just think quickly here. Three kind of lessons that we can take, I think, from this parable about the conditions of people's hearts. What, what do we learn from this? The first one has something to do with, with ministry. With ministry. Um, <clears throat> notice this phrase here, the end of verse 20 and, and verse 8, this um, description of the amount of fruit that is born here. 30-fold, 60-fold, and hundredfold. What, what Jesus is saying here is that different Christians will bear different amounts of fruit in their spiritual lives. And that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Some Christians bear a hundredfold. They're just super fruitful. They, they just, they share their faith. People believe. They start a ministry. People come. They just, they bear a lot of fruit. Others, well, not so much. And some of you might be thinking, you know, I, I try, I want to be involved, I want to serve, but I share my faith, it goes nowhere. I start a ministry, nobody comes. I, I, I just don't, my life isn't bearing any fruit. I don't know as much as other people. I'm not as mature as other Christians. And, and you're kind of discouraged by that, maybe. But be encouraged here, friends. Not everybody is going to bear the same amount of fruit. If you bear 30-fold and someone else bears 100-fold, I mean, that's God's business. God is the one who bears that fruit, causes that fruit to be born. And, and we need to be content with what he chooses to do. The important thing, friend, for you is your attitude toward the word. You know, some people, if they don't find a lot of success in their ministry, they might become angry at God, and then their heart gets hardened toward the word, and they don't want to hear, and they don't want to listen. And that's what we should beware 
of. Here's what Isaiah says. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. This is who God esteems, who God favors, who God looks upon with great favor, the one who sits at his word and trembles in humility and openness and teachability. So we learn something here about ministry. Secondly, we learn something here about evangelism. Evangelism. Maybe you're one who has been sharing your faith with somebody. You've been hoping that someone close to you becomes a Christian and you've been talking to them about the gospel and they're resisting it. And you're beginning to think that maybe the problem is you. You're not sharing the gospel right. You're messing it up somehow. There's something about your personality they don't like and they're not receiving the gospel because of you and it's your fault. That's what you're thinking and you're overwhelmed with guilt. What this passage is telling us is that more likely than not, the problem is not you, but the heart of the person that you're speaking to. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't occasions when the gospel can be shared poorly. I mean, that, that is certainly the case. But the point of this parable is that it's the hardness of people's hearts that resist the gospel. I mean, isn't it interesting here that it's the same sower and the same seed in every case, but entirely different results among these four conditions of the heart. Be encouraged, friends. Keep speaking the gospel. It's not your fault if someone's heart is hardened to what you have to say. They have to give an account to God for what they've done with the word that has been sown in their hearts. But the last thing to say here has to do with, with the gospel. And this just gets, I think, to the main point and the biggest point of, of this parable, and that is this. What is your response, friends, to the gospel, to the word when it falls upon your ears? What is your heart like when you hear that you are a sinner who needs a savior and that your sin is so serious that Jesus had to die for you and that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. There's no morality or religious effort on your part that can save yourself. You have to throw yourself at the feet of the cross, foot of the cross. You have to wave the white flag of surrender and receive what God is offering to you in Jesus. That's, that's the gospel. When you hear that, how, how do you respond to that? I mean, to many, it's good news. To some people, it's offensive. What is it to you? Is your heart hard? You hear the gospel, you hear the word, you resist it, you're offended by it, you plug your ears, you've got to figure it out, you're not going to change your mind. Is your heart shallow in response to the gospel? That is, you, you'll take it just so long as things keep going well for you? Just as long as there's no tribulation or persecution, you'll take it. But as soon as things get hard, I'm out. Maybe your heart is distracted. You're so distracted by entertainment and comfort and pleasure and sports and games and cell phones that you don't even care about the gospel. Is that you? Man, that's a dangerous place to be in. You can distract yourself all the way to the grave in this day and age. But perhaps your heart is open, friends. Your heart is open. Your heart warms a little bit when you hear the word. Your ears perk up a little bit. You know, probably all of us 
are a composite of all these things. All of us are a little bit hard sometimes. All of us are a little bit shallow sometimes. All of us are a little bit distracted or a lot distracted sometimes. But in the end, are you open? Do you have a posture of willingness to submit? Are you teachable? Do you want to believe in the word like a child? That's a sign and evidence of good soil. And some of you might be thinking, well, I am hard, I am shallow, I am distracted, I don't know what to do, and my um, exhortation to you would, would simply be this. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart. Because he will do that. And know that there is a Savior who died for hard hearts, for hard-hearted people. He died to make hard hearts soft. He sent the Holy Spirit to soften your heart, to give you understanding, to give you ears to hear and eyes to see. That's the kind of Savior that he is. So pray and ask God, God, open the eyes of my heart that I might believe that my heart would become soft and that I would bear fruit for his glory until the day that he returns again. We're not just going to pray that, but we're going to sing that in just a moment. But let me pray first and invite the band to come forward. Uh, Father, we do ask that you would open the eyes of our sluggish hearts, our our hard hearts, our shallow hearts, our distracted hearts. Make us open, make us teachable, make us tremble at your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.